All right, well, good morning and welcome to NBC. We are really excited to start our series on the Gospel of Luke this morning. Now, you might not know, uh, Luke is actually the longest book in the New Testament uh, as it goes by word count. And we're going to spend 30 weeks in the series, so that's going to take us through the end of June. Uh, I would just invite you to buckle up this morning. Uh, now, today is also, as Pastor Dave mentioned, the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent, unlike Christmas, is supposed to be this somber time. It's a time of longing and waiting and hoping. And we just completed a series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Rise Up and Build series. And if you remember, last week we talked about Nehemiah 12, where the people gathered together to dedicate the temple, and we read that the joy of Jerusalem could be heard far away. But here's the crazy part. After Nehemiah ends, if you didn't know, like there is 400 years of silence No scriptures written, no prophets speak, there's just silence, and it seems like the joy has left Jerusalem. And so the people of God then walk through this dark period with pain and suffering and persecution, and it's during this period of silence that the people are waiting, they're longing for Messiah to come and end their suffering. It's a period where I imagine they feel lost, and they're longing to be found, And then we get to Luke chapter 1 and 2, and something drastically changes. A baby is born. A baby is born. Messiah is here, but but many people don't recognize it. Now, if you fast forward to Luke chapter 19, there's actually a famous story about a man named Zacchaeus, the guy who climbed up in the sycamore tree, if you remember the song from many years ago. Many of you may be familiar with Zacchaeus because he he was short. Yes, my my vertically challenged people out there can resonate with Zacchaeus. Uh, Now, Zacchaeus was also a wealthy tax collector in Jericho, and uh, Jesus has been doing his Jesus thing. He's been walking around, uh, and and people have heard about him, and, uh, and, and Zacchaeus is interested in meeting him. And so while Jesus is walking through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, Zacchaeus runs out in the crowds, but he's too short to see Jesus. And so what does he do? He climbs up in the tree, and then Jesus notices him. And not only that, but Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus goes and dines with a a sinner, which was just scandalous in that day. And that's a common theme in Luke. People wonder, what is Jesus doing? And do you remember what Jesus tells them? He says, today salvation has come to this house since he's also a son of Abraham, for what? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, verse 10 captures Luke's purpose for writing his gospel, and that is just salvation. Salvation for those who are lost. It's a major theme in the gospel, In fact, in in Luke 15, a very famous chapter, Jesus tells three stories. You might remember them. Three stories about something that was lost. There's a, a story about a coin and a sheep and a son. And in each story, people go to great lengths to find what was lost. So I want to pause this morning and ask you, have you ever lost something? Have you ever lost something? I suspect you have. We've lost many, many things. And I'll, I'll share a, a personal story from the Erbig uh, household. Uh, losing things is a regular occurrence. In fact, there, there's some standard items that get lost. For example, does anybody out there ever misplace their cell phone? Now, when I was growing up, or maybe when you were growing up, a, a phone had a cord. It looked a little bit like this. Do you remember these things? 
It was like a built-in treasure map when you lost the phone. You know, you just followed the cord, and there it was. Or you just had to follow that annoying sound that the phone made when it was off the hook, right? And all the Gen Z people were saying, what? Are you kidding me? A phone that can't record video? That's not a phone. Now, cell phones can go anywhere. In fact, every, every, every few days, uh, my wife, and I love you, honey, uh, will inevitably ask me, and this happened yesterday, where's my phone? Have you seen my phone? Call it. And of course I do, like, like you know, I want to help her out. And then, you know where it is 90% of the time? It's right next to her. The reality is we lose items all the time. Many items are missing in action. Have you lost any of these items on, this, on the screen right here? Right, remotes, the only thing that gets lost more than cell phones. Car keys, glasses, guilty. In fact, I wish I could tally up the hours of my life that are spent looking for lost Things. Now, of all those things, that are on the, all those things that are on the screen, they can be replaced at a low cost. But, but let's say you lost something like, like your child. You go to a park, you're, you're at the pool, you go shopping with some friends, you take your eye off your kid for a second, and they're gone. Right? And, and, then, and then the feeling of losing your child is a little bit different than losing your keys. When you lose your keys, you're annoyed. If you lose your child, you're terrified. Now, let me take it a step further and ask you, have you ever felt lost yourself? Have you ever been lost? When was the last time you were lost? Now, that experience can take several forms. First, you, you, could, you could be physically lost, right? Maybe you go to a new location and you're driving around and you're not paying attention. You know, it, and, but that really isn't a problem in our modern world, right? We have GPS in every single phone. You just say, take me home, Siri, and, and now you don't have to be lost, no, well, now, secondly, you might feel lost, not physically, but emotionally. Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe you don't know your purpose. Maybe you were fired, your romance ended, or your favorite sports teams didn't make the playoffs. And you feel like you're wandering around in the wilderness without a guide. But, but don't worry. Nowadays, there's therapy that can happen everywhere, in person, online. No problem. Or you could just ask, you could just ask ChatGPT for some emotional guidance. I want to suggest that we don't like feeling lost, and we go to great lengths to avoid it. We seek to live a life of never lost. Now, nobody likes to admit they're lost because we don't know, we have to admit that we don't know what we're doing. And nowadays, as I mentioned, technology offers an answer, a solution that's readily available. But I just wonder this morning, are we really never lost? Or is technology just masking something troubling underneath? Now, when I was younger, before the iPhone burst on the scene, if you moved to a new location, you, I was acutely aware when I was lost, or I would go to a coffee shop and I would just reflect on life. But today, I find myself constantly distracted by technology. In fact, can anybody out there ever stand in line, you know, somewhere without checking your phone? Technology, I think, has desensitized us to this experience of lost and it also taps into a core desire. We long to be found. We long to be known. We long to be loved. We were made to worship. But the question is, by whom or by what will we be found? And what Luke is going to show us over the next many months is that Jesus is telling us he's seeking us. He is pursuing us. Us. He is going to leave the 99 sheep just to find the one. He is going to show us 
how many of us don't think we're lost, but we are? That's the story of the elder brother and the prodigal son. He didn't think he was lost. We miss our lostness because we run to other saviors. They mask our lostness. And when you don't know you're lost, you don't think you need to be found. You stop looking for help, and that's a problem. Now, Tim Keller wrote a famous book a number of years ago entitled Counterfeit Gods, and I want you to notice the subtitle here, When the Empty Promises of Love, Money, and Power Let You Down. Love, money, power. They all make us feel found to an extent, but they can leave us lost. When not put in their proper place, they become what the Bible calls idols. They become things we worship. And this is how Tim Keller defines that. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is anything, anything more important to you than God. They absorb you. They, They addict you. If you lose it, your life would feel pointless. In other words, you would feel lost. Have you ever been lost? They're counterfeit gods. But we run to them because we long to be found. We long to be seen. We long to be known, right? Money, love, power, they promise us fulfillment. But in in the end, many times, they leave us alone and depressed the next morning. They, They only call or text when they want something from us. And when they capture our hearts, they're very hard to relinquish. They mask our lostness and make us believe that we're found. They pretend to love us. Now, let me give you another example from Luke. Luke 18. Jesus meets another character who doesn't think he's lost, the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with a question, and it's a question that we're all asking ourselves. And it's this. It says this in verse 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, that's a question that runs really deep. And and I I think it's, he's really asking this question, how can I not be lost? I want to be found. And do you remember what Jesus tells him? Verse 22, he says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And you say, wow. Now, Now, what is he saying? He's saying, you ha- he, what he's really saying here is you have to give up the most important thing to you, the thing that has been promising fulfillment, the place where you have felt found. Jesus says, follow me because I'm offering something a whole lot better. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, the rich young ruler, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was very sad. Now, Why? Now, the verse isn't actually saying that wealth is a bad thing. Rather, it has become this false savior for this man, and he's not willing to surrender it to Jesus. In fact, I would go so far as to say again, he didn't know he was lost. And Luke's gospel is filled with people like this. And we, too, live in this never-lost world, but it's an illusion, is what Luke's going to tell us. That's the central message of Luke's gospel. Jesus Christ came to save lost people who don't feel lost, who don't want to admit that they're lost. Like the elder brother, like the rich young ruler, we're all asking and answering the question, how do I inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, it's me. Right? I have come to save people who are pretending they are found. In fact, Luke's first two chapters, so well-known at Christmas, explode with the truth that someone better is here. The real Savior has come with his kingdom. Why? To seek and to save the lost. He came to save the world. That's the message of Christmas. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to focus in on Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and we're going to explore some themes that resonate through this whole gospel. And so let's ask that question of the rich young ruler. How do I inherit eternal life? How can I be found? And Luke 1, 1 to 4 outlines a three-part journey uh, that gets us there. The first thing we see is that you have to know the narrative. The second thing is he invites us to examine the eyewitnesses. And then third, third he says, when you do those things, then you got to surrender to certainty. So let me just pray, and let's ask for God's help on the rest of our time this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for um, the gospel of Luke, what it's going to teach us, Lord God, uh, what it's going to expose in our hearts, Lord, and I invite us to come to a place where we, we want that, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and speak to our hearts, that you would move us, that you would bring us closer to yourself, and that you would get all the glory today, Lord. Help us to recognize where we're lost and we need to be found. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so first, you got to know the narrative. you got to know the narrative. Now, Luke's gospel is a theological narrative about Jesus Christ. And since we're spending a long time in Luke, uh, what we decided to do for you for these months was to offer a tool to help us savor the lessons and learn the narrative. So beginning today, out in the lobby, there is a, a, a journal, a Luke, a, a Luke journaling Bible that we're offering at a discounted cost. Now, I have the really pretty front version of it uh, that I got, but the, the ones back there are equally good. Uh, they look like this on the screen here. Um, if you did actually scan the code on the way in, make sure when you go to the table after the service uh, that you show that to Christy so she can, she can give you your, uh, your journal today. But uh, what we're going to invite you to do is, is use this uh, to write, to you know, read the text, but also take notes, to write out thoughts, to write out prayers. Um, I, I've personally used this for a number of books, and um, it's wonderful. So I would just encourage you to pick up one of these today on your way out. Because Luke's gospel is a theological narrative. Now, do, do some of you out there remember Daryl Bach? He spoke at our Contend Conference in January. Uh, what you might not know about Daryl is that Daryl is a world-renowned scholar on Luke and Acts, and he notes this about Luke. He says, Luke's gospel teaches theology while recounting the events surrounding Jesus' life. It teaches theology while recounting Jesus' life, and it has a much different flavor than Matthew and Mark or John, all of which read a little bit more like biographies. In fact, Luke, the author, is the only gospel writer who was not an eyewitness to Jesus. Instead, he's a historian. So he undertakes this major writing project for a wealthy patron, a guy named Theophilus. So Luke's gospel begins this way, verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And this verse right at the beginning tells you exactly what Luke's doing. He's telling you a story about what happened with Jesus. And then as you read the gospel, it's going to become clear again that Luke has a goal. He wants you to believe in Jesus so that you may be saved from your sins. He wants you to know with certainty who Jesus is. Now, since this is the first sermon in the series, let me uh, give you a little bit of background for the book. Uh, first, it's widely believed that Luke is the author, uh, the author of this book, since it's named after him. 
but he's not named in either the gospel or Acts. Um, he is named in Acts as an eyewitness to the events. He's just not named as the author specifically. Luke and Acts are a two-volume series. So Luke is part one. Acts is part two. And he writes again to somebody specific. Look at verse three. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is a pretty interesting character. Uh, his name literally means friend of God or the one God loves. And the broadness of that term has made many people think that maybe this wasn't a singular person. Maybe it was a group of people. It was just a, a, a cover-up for who they were. Now, a second kind of interesting hypothesis is that Theophilus was somebody important in Roman society, a governor or, or, uh, or, or maybe even Emperor Vespasian's nephew, somebody who didn't want to be discovered. And so following Jesus at the time for this person was going to be really costly. And so this wealthy patron remained anonymous. Uh, now, this may be why Luke includes so much teaching, so much of Jesus' teaching on wealth, uh, but we, we can't know for certain. Now, there's also some debate about the dating of Luke's composition, but more than likely, uh, he wrote this gospel in the early to mid-60s A.D. And one thing we do know with more certainty is that Luke's audience consisted of Jews and Gentiles. In fact, there's such a heavy inclusion element on Gentiles into God's plan that Luke has been called the gospel writer for the Gentiles, along with uh, a lot of significant passages and acts that talk about this. Now, Theophilus was likely a Gentile who needed reassurance about his faith because Christianity was originally a Jewish movement that found itself now under pressure, surprisingly, from the Jews. So the question was, who should be included as the people of God? And that becomes a major topic in Acts and Paul's letters. Now, structurally speaking, Luke has some natural breaking points, which we're going to follow in our series. So we're in the first part, the Advent part, the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1 and 2 uh, talks about Christmas and the surrounding events. And those chapters, as I mentioned, are going to serve as the backdrop for our December series. Uh, the second part gets into Jesus' public ministry. Luke chapter 3 to 9 sees the beginning of Jesus going out, and there's a, a heavy focus on his miracles and other teachings. Essentially, Jesus goes public, and he catches people's attention with his teaching and ministry. But then we get to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and there there's a major, major turn. We read in that verse that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus goes on the road. And for the next 10 chapters, a major portion of Luke's gospel, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's, he's taken a little stroll all the way to Jerusalem. That's where he meets Zacchaeus. It's a very parable-heavy section of the gospel. So Jesus is telling stories. He's teaching his disciples as he walks to accomplish his mission. And then, of course, in Luke 19.45 to the end, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem for the final week, for the crucifixion, for the resurrection appearances. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take up these different chunks and, and move them through and make it feel like we're moving through Luke's narrative with you. And if you want to be found, as I mentioned before, you have to know the narrative in its entirety. Now, as we move through these sections, we learn a bit more about Luke's purpose in writing, and a few themes emerge in this narrative. The first theme is that of God's plan. The plan of God is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke. God's sovereign over all things, and it's not a mistake, we learn, that Jesus came to earth. Christmas is not a mistake. The, the invasion of the incarnation was something God planned, intended to do. Jesus came to fulfill God's 
promise of Messiah who would save the world. And the cross is central. In fact, one of the questions Luke forces us to ask is, how can the cross of Christ be part of God's sovereign plan? The second theme is that of God's mission. Another major theme in Luke's narrative is his initiation into salvation, that, that we learn God revealed himself in the Old Testament, but he is now unfolding his plan of salvation and, and displaying in the life, of, of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the lost. In fact, as Mark, uh, commentator Mark McKinley observes, this gospel is not a self-help manual. It is the story of a divine rescue mission. And then third, we learn about God's love for the outsider. So naturally flowing from those first two themes is this third theme. Jesus loves the outsider. He's not, he's not only concerned with prominent people, but with the outcast as well. And, and so Luke emphasizes over and over again uh, this theme. Now, who are the outsiders of his day that we're going to see? Well, first, women. Right? Luke's, Luke gives an extraordinary and prominent place to women in this theological narrative. Women were faithful friends um, when the men abandoned him at the end. Uh, Martha sat, sat at Jesus' feet to learn, and especially widows are commended for prayer and financial sacrifice uh, to Jesus. Uh, second, children. In, in the first century, children uh, did not have a prominent place, but Jesus went out of his way to take great concern for children who were ill, uh, oppressed by demons, uh, even dead. Third, sinners. As described in the opening, Zacchaeus was viewed as a terrible sinner. And over and over again, Jesus is portrayed as interacting with sinners, which was scandalous for his day, but really good for us. And then finally, foreigners. As I mentioned, Luke places a great emphasis on the Gentiles coming to faith. The gospel is not just for the Jews. It now extends to the Gentiles. And that's a theme that continues, as mentioned, in volume two of Acts. Now, one final theme I will mention, which, which really is the point and has great application for us, and that theme is the kingdom of God. Luke tells us about this theme often, emphasizing the reality that the king is here, but not the one we expected. Christ has come to set up his kingdom. As theologians say, the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully here until Jesus comes back to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And until that time, he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, before I leave this point, I would just, along with that, ask an applicational question. How are you building the kingdom? Because when you know the narrative there must be a lived-out response. And there's two groups of people that are listening today. First, some of you may be seekers. And you're here today because you're seeking the king and his kingdom. You, you want to know a little bit more about this Jesus and, and his life and what's going on. And my encouragement to you today is just don't stop seeking. Because the hound of heaven, as C.S. Lewis said, is seeking you out. Now, second, some of you here are saved. You're, you're the saints. We're, we're in the kingdom but now we have to go seek people out. Jesus had a mission, and then he gives us a mission to share the good news of the gospel. The king has come to save. He should, we should trust in God's sovereignty as we seek the outsiders in our midst. And if you're somebody who has tasted eternal life, there will be a response because the story is bigger than we are. Now, speaking of story, uh, we would like you to help us tell it. In fact, once you know the narrative, you have to share it. 
So what better time to tell people about Jesus than Christmas? And so one of the things we're going to do is we're looking, for, uh, we're looking to create an Advent devotional resource. So if you're a writer and you would like to submit a short devotional, uh, we will take that, review it, and then publish it on our pastor's uh, blog on the website. And then next year, we, we're going to compile all those entries and, and turn them into an Advent devotional for the congregation. So if you're, if you're good at writing and you're interested in that, uh, contact us for more details. We would, love to, we would love to chat with you. So we have to know the narrative so we can live out the narrative. But that's the first thing Luke teaches us. But, but he doesn't stop there. If you want to inherit eternal life, second, we have to examine the eyewitnesses. So Luke begins his gospel by telling us he's compiling a narrative, he's telling a story, but he acknowledges that he's not the first one to attempt this feat. And so we read this in Luke 1, verse 2. It says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke is another in a line of people who have told the story. Now, it was common for historians to acknowledge those who had written before them, uh, but he uses that word eyewitnesses, which is really important. Hellenistic or Greek historians required eyewitnesses when recording history to verify its veracity. So since Luke was the only gospel writer who was not an eyewitness, it's important that he acknowledge he spoke to a few. But then you might say, well, if others had written, why, why is Luke writing another account? Well, he continues in verse 3, as I mentioned before. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke wants to write about what he heard. He says, I've closely examined the evidence. Uh, my Greek language skills are really superb. Luke was a great communicator. He wants to put all that evidence in, in a way that, we will be, that will be beneficial for followers of Jesus. And it's also likely that Theophilus, who's wealthy, funded Luke's writing project. And he gave, basically gave him a grant because he wanted the best account he could get. He, and Luke writes to offer assurance that what they had believed was true. And, and that's true for all of us, I think. We all want an orderly account. Commenting on Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the church father Ambrose wrote this. He said, so the gospel was written to Theophilus, that is, to him whom God loves. And he says to us, if you love God, it was written to you. It is written to you, so discharge the duty of an evangelist. Diligently preserve the pledge of a friend in the secrets of the Spirit. So if you're a Christian here who's doubting their faith, Luke was written to you to give you assurance. He compiles and he curates all the eyewitnesses. He makes an excellent, cogent, and even scientific argument. He, he's, he's got a heart for the gospel to go to all people. Or if you're not a Christian here today, if you're seeking, Luke also writes this gospel to you. He wants to introduce you to the one who is seeking you in return. And so as we read the rest of Luke's gospel, you will see an account of these eyewitnesses and several themes emerge from those encounters. So some other themes in Luke are, are this. First, the power of the Holy Spirit is evident. In fact, the evidence of the Spirit's work gets a prominent place in Luke, which again sets him apart from the other gospel writers. Mark mentions the Holy Spirit six times, Matthew 12 times, but Luke refers to the Spirit 17 times and then another 70 times in Acts. Luke is focused on the Holy Spirit. So, for example, as Jesus enters the wilderness to be tempted, we read this in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. 
It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So again, the Spirit's work is evident there. We see the Spirit prominent at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. The Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism later in Luke 4. And then if you, if you fast forward to Acts, the Spirit is unleashed at Pentecost. Luke discovered the supernatural work of the Spirit during his investigations. Second, Luke discovered the importance of prayer. Throughout Luke, there are parables about prayer. Luke records the Lord's prayer during the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified. Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, the eyewitnesses, to pray. Prayer is an important theme in Luke. And then third, third, the people sing. Singing is a major part of Luke, especially in the first two chapters of the gospel that we're looking at this month. In chapters one and two, the action is constantly interrupted by, by song. It's kind of like a Broadway, Broadway show in the first couple chapters. Mary sings, then the angel sings. In fact, Luke uses the word rejoice more than any other author of the scriptures. The eyewitnesses who saw the Messiah uh, taught us to sing in response to God's grace. Because when you know the narrative, when you've examined the eyewitnesses, you discover the story is true, and then all you can do is sing in response. In fact, perhaps the most important eyewitness account is that of the resurrection. So Luke does something extraordinary there. He tells us that women were the first people to discover the empty tomb. Now, as many scholars have noted, because of women's place in first century Roman society, including them in that story was not something many people would do. People that would then dismiss the story. And the conclusion is that's why it must be true. And so Luke continues this theme of highlighting the outsider to prove the truth of the story. So so the women encounter an angel at the tomb, and the angel says this. It says, as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. They say, Jesus Christ the King, the Messiah, the Savior who came to seek and save the lost, died in our place on the cross, but then he rose again from the dead. And so Luke includes the eyewitnesses of the resurrection to prove to us that the stories are true. Jesus is who he said he is. We should believe in him and trust him for salvation. And then we can say with Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Some of you might recognize the name J. Warner Wallace. Uh, He's a former homicide detective who came to Christ and wrote a book entitled Cold Case Christianity. His approach, he he approached his journey to faith like his profession. He, He investigated the evidence, the eyewitness evidence, to see where it led him. And here's what he says about the eyewitness accounts. He says this, the apostolic eyewitnesses gave their lives to help us understand that we as fallen, imperfect humans are in desperate need of a Savior. Or put another way, we are lost and we need to be found. We need the power of Jesus' resurrection. 
Do you believe in the power of the resurrection today? This same Jesus who performed miracles in Luke 3 to 9 is the same Jesus who taught his disciples on the road, is the same Jesus who entered Jerusalem, died on a cross, and rose again. The eyewitnesses have confirmed it. So examine them. Friends, we, we live in a world full of uncertainty. The stock market is up and down. Elections are more contentious than ever. Social media has caused a, a rift in relationships. Even medicine has taken a hit. It all exposes the reality that one day, if you haven't already, one day you will suffer. And when suffering comes, where will you turn? What savor will you look to? Because so many of us run to idols, uh, to dead saviors who can't help us. But Luke tells us you got to turn to the only living savior there is, Jesus Christ. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, when you read Luke's gospel, you know the narrative. Then you examine the eyewitnesses. But finally, the reason for doing all this is to surrender to certainty. Surrender to certainty. That's the final point, and that's what the gospel is all about. It's the reason Luke wrote the gospel. He wanted to give Theophilus and all like him the assurance of faith. And so he concludes the opening section this way. He wrote to Theophilus, why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There you have it. Why did Luke write the gospel? So that you and I, so that Theophilus could have certainty of the things that have been taught. Now let me return for a moment about the possible identity of Theophilus. Uh, again, we don't know for certain, but let's just imagine for one moment. Some people think that Theophilus was a nephew to the emperor Vespasian who followed Nero. No friend of the Christian church. It became known, if it became known that this nephew was a Christian, he would suffer severe consequences, loss of finances and relationships, maybe even his life. Remember, Luke was written likely during the period that Nero was persecuting Christians, dragging Christians in, watching them die for sport in the Roman Empire. In addition, Theophilus is watching all the Jews attack the Christians, especially the Gentiles, and he's wondering, he's asking the question, is this worth it? Right? Is following Jesus worth my life and my reputation? Is it worth jail time? Is it worth losing my fame and my fortune? Is it true? And it's in that context that he commissions Luke to investigate, to research whether it's true. And Luke writes him back, finally, in not one but two volumes with a resounding, yes, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is the King. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to save the world, Theophilus. And Luke says, I've turned over every rock. I've put together the best scholarship, the best research, so that you may have certainty that Jesus is who he said he is. And if Jesus is the Son of God, you have to surrender to him. But now if Luke is so clear, you might ask, if his evidence is so compelling, why do we still doubt? Why do we still resist? Well, Gary Habermas wrote a wonderful little book entitled Dealing with Doubt, and he highlights three categories of doubt within that book. The first category he talks about is emotional doubt. So you might have an emotional connection to a problem, and, and it's in this category that our suffering comes to the forefront. You might have trouble believing in God or the gospel or Jesus because you think, well, he let your loved one die, or he allowed you to lose your job, 
or that romance never materialized. Whatever it is, you might think that God doesn't care about you, and so you resist. Right? Th- then there's, then there's uh, secondly, there's intellectual doubt. And some of us are asking very good intellectual questions. And, and that's important. We should ask good questions so we can find answers, so we can have, 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 a, have a foundation for our faith. But for some, there might be some questions we just can't get over. And so you're looking under every single rock. And, and while I believe there's a lot of good questions, and Luke provides some for faith in Christ, I've noticed there's questions people keep coming back to over and over and over again. And so then you get into volitional doubt. And if that's the case, I wonder if we're getting into a category where, you know, we might find all the answers, but yet we still resist. I've met people like that. And we resist because simply we just don't want to surrender to Jesus. We still want to be the king or queen of our own lives. We're willfully resisting, not because we have an emotional or intellectual hang-up, but just simply because we don't want to give in. That's the volitional doubt piece. So I want you to look at the screen right now and just ask, is there one of these categories you're struggling with? And I want to speak to the doubters for, for just a moment because some of us, even right now, we need to hear Luke 1, 4. So you want to follow Jesus, but for whatever reason, you're resisting. In fact, you might even be a Christian. And now, because you're a Christian, now you're experiencing some societal pressure. And you say it would be be a lot easier just to, to give in and to give up and to not follow Jesus or make my faith known. You're asking that same question Theophilus is asking. Is it worth it? Is it true? And I think the God of the universe is speaking this morning to all of us through his servant Luke, and he's just simply saying, yes, it is. I have written this gospel so that you can know for certain the things you've been taught about Jesus. And others of us in this room, or or you're listening later, he's been leading you, the Holy Spirit, he's been leading you down a long path to Jesus. It's not an accident that the Holy Spirit takes this prominent place in the Gospel of Luke because he's the person of the Trinity who awakens our heart to regeneration. He's the one who illuminates us to the Gospel. He's the one who draws us to the person and work of Christ who died for our sins to earn salvation for us. And today, he wants us to know with certainty that Jesus is God. He died for you. And now you can be adopted into the family of God as our, with him as our father. But what you need to do is to surrender. You need to repent of your sins and turn to him so that all the angels in heaven would rejoice. That's what the rich young ruler could not do. He walked away sad because he wanted to hold on to his life. What are you holding on to that you will not give to Jesus? In Luke 9.51, I mentioned earlier, there's a shift in the gospel. Luke, Jesus, sets his face to Jerusalem, and he knows it's going to be his last journey. He knows he's going to the cross to his death. Just before he begins that journey with his disciples in Luke 9, he talks about the cost of following him. And Jesus draws a line in the sand. He says this, Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world 
and loses or forfeits himself. And those are not my words. Those are not even Luke's words. Those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. And for first century Christians, death for Christ was a real possibility. And so he's asking you, he's asking me, he was asking them, what are you holding on to? Will, you will surrender to something. <laughs> Do you think money will save you? Do you think love will save you? And romance, do you think power and education and prestige will save you? What will it profit the whole world if you lose yourself in the process? And so the reason Luke wrote this whole gospel is so that you can know for certain that Jesus is the real and better Savior. He, he wrote it so you can know you're a sinner, and he wrote it so you can surrender to the true king, Jesus, the one who came to save the world. And so as the worship team comes back on stage for one last song, and before we come to the table this morning, I just want to pause and recognize the significance of Jerusalem. Because as I mentioned in the opening, we, we completed a study on Ezra and Nehemiah, and the whole point of their work, if you were here for that series, was just simply they were rebuilding the temple and they were rebuilding the city. Rise up and build, right? But then after they rose up and built, what did they do? They waited, and they waited and they waited. For centuries, they waited. But the promised king did not return. And then one night, after all the silence, there's, there's whispers of a birth. Whispers of a coming king reach the ears of power of the day, who then send out assassins to try and kill this new threat to their power. And then we read, we read about these shepherds out in the darkness watching their sheep. Unassuming shepherds, certainly not the, the powerful and important people of their day, just, just doing their, their jobs. They're out in the fields, and then one night the darkness lifts, right? A bright light shines in the sky, something they've never seen before. A multitude of angelic beings, can you imagine? A host of heavenly beings appear, causing them to fall to the ground in fear, we read. Fall to the ground, covering their eyes from the light, and I imagine they wait for a moment, breathless and trembling, wondering what is happening as they uncover their eyes, as they open their ears, and they hear singing. Because a song of joy is about to return to the people of God. What do they hear? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the Savior, the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And this is why Luke writes his gospel account. Because after all the waiting, after all the pain, after all the doubt, after all the uncertainty, the king is here. Jesus is here, and he came to seek and to save the lost. And then Luke tells us about his birth. 
He tells us how he grew. He tells us about his public ministry. And then over 400 years later, in Luke 9, 51, after that city was completed, Jesus again turns his face to Jerusalem. And he begins a journey to the city. It's bigger than Nehemiah's time, but it's crucially important because it is where Jesus will give his life for his people to save the world. So in just a moment, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. John's queuing it up right now. This rendition captures, I think, both lyrically and tonally the feelings the people of God were experiencing before and on the night of this announcement. And so if you feel lost today, I pray that you will be found because Jesus is seeking you and all you have to do is surrender. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that even when we don't seek you, you're coming after us. And so I pray today, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes afresh to see our Savior, to savor his birth, to, to, to be marveled at your grace. And we just say, come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set his people free. Amen, amen. Glory to God. Amen.